Thank you, Howard. You hopefully got a lesson for today. And in addition to a lesson, um, I finally did the ballot. It's Columbus Day weekend and church service was not as full. And we're not quite as full, but we've got a pretty good bit here. So this is your chance to vote on where we go from here. Now, there are several ways you can do this. One, you can look at this and decide you're going to vote for something you don't want to come to. But if you're not going to come, don't waste uh, your vote. Uh, two, you can look at something and say, well, I'd come to that. It kind of scares me handing out a ballot because I have this personality quirk where if I vote, yeah, I like to win. If, if, uh, if I vote for something, and it makes me really dangerous, I like eBay and auctions, because to me, it's not how do you get a bargain. To me, it's I can win. <laughs> you're betting $5 on that? I'll bet $1,000. Um, you're not going to beat me. Um, no, it, anyway, uh, I have a tendency when I vote for things, if my vote doesn't win, I quit. So... <laughs> I decided to risk handing these out anyway and just accept the fact that I have major behavioral problems. <laughs> and y'all are probably, hopefully, not like me. And, and so if you want to vote on what we do, option one is uh, biblical literacy. We'll start all over again. And uh, um, I, I hopefully would not merely regurgitate last time and just hand out the old lessons, but would kick it up a couple of notches and revamp it. So the goal of the class would be, how did we get the Bible? Where did it come from? Who decided what's in it? Why are these books in this order? And starting with Genesis and going through Revelation, what are the stories that are being told? And what are the doctrines that are being taught? And what are the lessons we need to learn? So that's option one. That's, you know, we've done that for three years. Hey, we can do it again. Option two, church history literacy. We should end with Revelation, which is the last book not only in the Bible, but chronologically the last book written, uh, most likely, in the Bible. And so when we end with that, which uh, I believe John wrote from the island of Patmos in the 90s, um, we just sort of pick up from there. And let's follow and look at the major people in the church and the major movements in the church and, and take it through the early church and the early church fathers and look at some of the martyrs. Um, uh, be inspired by their lives and their deaths. Look at some of the early issues in the church, which were fascinating. Look at some of the early heretics of the church, which are interesting. And we would keep on going through. We'd catch up through Martin Luther and the Reformation movement. And ultimately, the idea would be to bring us to how Champion Forest Baptist Church meets here on Sundays. Um, I would be very careful because I'm... I'm like many of you, uh, grew up in the Church of Christ, and, and we, um, uh, we like develop a rash if we don't study the Bible in Sunday school. And so I would <laughs> either be taking a lot of Benadryl and scratching, or I would figure out how in the process of church history we tie it in to the biblical passages so that at the end of every class I've still got points for home that, that aren't just go out and be like Justin Martyr, but are, you know, uh, points of, of, you know, look at the way this scripture uh, was a, a fighting point. Look at how the church made a decision to take these scriptures and, and live or die on them. And, and we, we would uh, do that. Um, so that'd be church history literacy. Uh, option three, theological literacy. Um, this would be the idea. 
In theology, this is pretty pathetic in a way, um, but, but it's not. It just makes us sound like nerds. Um, in theology, there are different categories of, of thought. And, and like in medicine, we have medical doctors, right? And you can have just general medicine doctors, but you can see John Adams and he's an anesthesiologist or our, our Barhorst is an pain doctor slash anesthesiologist. Or, you know, you got all of these different specialties. Okay, in theology, they have the same thing. So in theology, you have different categories. Sometimes they overlap with philosophy. Sometimes they don't. But you have like soteriology, which is the study or the doctrines of salvation. That's just a fancy way of saying it off the Greek word for salvation. You have uh, uh, um, uh, epistemology, which is why we believe anything at all, why this isn't just some dream that maybe we're having that just never seems to end. Um, you have uh, uh, all sorts of different doctrines, and we deal with the doctrine of the Trinity. We deal with, uh, uh, in some more detail with doctrines of choice versus predestination. We look at doctrines of the second coming, which is called eschatology, uh, a study of the uh, uh, eschatos, the ends of time. So um, that would be what theological literacy would be, with the idea, in essence, of putting together kind of a systematic biblical theology, which is, is what uh, theologians call it. And then option four is a close, not close, but close book focus. And that would be to take a book in the Bible and, and really zoom in and take it apart, not just in concepts and not just in major themes and doctrines, but let's look at it in a very careful, studious, verse by verse, word by word sometimes fashion, try and understand some of it. If it's the New Testament book, I'll, I'll try and teach you a, a enough New Testament Greek to where you can really hone in and probably hand out the book in Greek and English so that you can kind of... Uh, fit that together. Um, if we choose an Old Testament book, then we'll do it in Hebrew and English, uh, which means we get to do it backwards because Hebrew is written, uh, it's either it's written backwards or we write backwards, depending on how you want to say it. Um, so if you want to vote, just put a big old X or circle. It's anonymous. You don't have to sign it. If you're voting for two people, then uh, uh, don't put two X's get two ballots, but if you don't want to vote for your spouse, if you think, hey, if it's this, then maybe my spouse would show up, then uh, great. Um, but whatever. Today we're in 1 Peter. We're not going to make it through all of 1 Peter. Uh, there's a chance that I may be gone next week if I am. Uh, I've already asked Charles Mickey to prepare 2 Peter. And so, uh-oh, please ask them to leave ballots in their seats at end of class and we will pick them up. Would y'all please leave your ballots in your seats at the end of class and they will pick them up. Um, uh, uh, so that means we may like, I, I, I'm not going to give the end of 1 Peter to anyone else because there's some stuff in there I really want to deal with. It's the passage where it talks about maybe Jesus going and preaching to the spirits while he's uh, uh, in the stage between crucifixion and resurrection. And uh, there's uh, uh, some other neat passages in, in Peter that are, are troublesome that, A, it's not fair to pawn off on someone else, and B, I actually would enjoy doing it. So we're going to look at 1 Peter part 1. We'll either do part 2 next week if I'm here. If I'm not, we'll do it the following week, and you'll jump 2 Peter in next week. Um, now, with that, thank you for being here. Let's start. Do you remember Peter? 
Okay, because we've been studying Paul like for 25 years, it seems. And Peter's been a long time ago. You remember, he was the guy who was the fisherman, one of the fishermen. Jesus called him and said, come with me and I'll make you fishers of men. And uh, uh, he didn't fish with hooks, but he fished with nets. And uh, I don't think we fish with hooks either. Um, but uh, uh, Jesus calls him. He was the impetuous guy. He was the guy, remember, who uh, uh, went walking on the water because Jesus said, you can do it too, come on. And then he starts sinking when he takes his eyes off the Savior. He was an impetuous man. He was a man who was very outspoken. He was one of the leaders of the Twelve. If Jesus had within the Twelve a, a, a closer crew, he was one of the close ones. Um, uh, you might remember uh, him as, as being one who's, who's not only nestled in close to Christ, but do you remember in Matthew chapter 16 when Jesus said, who do people say that I am? And, and oh, they say you're Elijah. They say you're all these things. And he says, but who do you say that I am? It's Peter who spoke up and said, you're the, yeah, you're the Christ. You're the son of God, of the living God, son of the living God. And, and that's when Peter said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. This wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father who's in heaven. Remember? I love that chapter because it's the same chapter where a little bit later, you know, Peter's got to be feeling pretty good because he like hit that one out of the park. I've got to digress for just a moment and tell you a quick story. I had lunch with a, a fella a, a, a week before last who is a judge here. And he's uh, Hispanic. His parents had been uh, uh, grown up in, in Colombia. And his dad had a third grade education. His mom had a fourth grade education. They didn't speak English well at all. I knew his father for many years because he waits tables at the downtown Ninfas, and, uh, or the one on navigation right outside of downtown. And th this is a judge, and it's, this is not improper, by the way, for me to be eating with him. I don't have anything in his court, so don't be sitting there saying, yeah, I've read about lawyers and judges eating together. Uh, it's not that kind of thing. It's just uh, we had a mutual friend who put us together, and, and I wanted to get to know him. And so uh, uh, we went to lunch, and his father is so proud of him because this boy grew up in a home where they couldn't hardly even speak English. And he not only put himself through college, high school first, college, law school, and he's now a judge. And uh, uh, the, the dad, oh, the dad comes to wait on the table and the dad is just so proud of his son. And I said, Reese Rondon is the, the judge's name. I said, Reese, I said, that's just really touching. And he started laughing and I said, why are you laughing? He said, oh, my parents think I'm the best thing in the world. I said, well, you may be. He said, no, you don't get it. He said, Mom and Dad, it's a weird thing. They don't speak very good English at all. But they have one TV show that they really love to watch. And every day they get home, they bring their food in, and for 15 years they've watched this TV show. Wheel of Fortune. <laughs> he said, now understand, they can't speak English, much less spell it, much less ever guess what it is. He said, I went home couple of nights ago. And uh, they were watching Wheel of Fortune. I think he brought his laundry back for his mom to do. Reese is a bachelor, 40 years old. But he says, so I go home and they're watching Wheel of Fortune. And I'm sitting there and I'm watching it. And it's obvious that the guy's just milking it for all the points he can before he cashes in. 
because it's got everything almost to say, follow the yellow brick road. So I looked at my parents and I said, follow the yellow brick road. And they, they looked at me. <laughs> they looked at the TV and they elbowed each other and whispered while they finished it up. And it was follow the yellow brick road. They thought, lucky boy. <laughs> so they said, a couple minutes later, there's another one. It's like to kill a mockingbird or something. And he's already got T blank, K blank, L L blank, M C K N G B R D. He looks at his parents and says, to kill a mockingbird. They watch. And, guy, to kill a mockingbird. That's right, ding, ding, ding. And they, they got on the phone and tried to call to get their son on TV because he's the <laughs> brightest guy in the world. Fifteen years, they'd never been able to answer. And Pam, he got three in a row. I told Reese, I said, I'm going to steal that story if you don't mind, and I'm going to tell it to my class. Because, you know, that's kind of how Peter, I think, must have been feeling. He had answered the question, who, who do you say that I am? Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Bar is Aramaic for son. Simon, bar Jonah. Simon, son of Jonah. Blessed are you. Heaven and earth didn't reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. So I think Peter must have been feeling pretty good later on in chapter 16 when Jesus starts saying, okay, the Son of Man, I got to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be kicked, beaten, ridiculed, and scorned. I'm going to be killed, but I'm going to be resurrected. And Peter's the one who boldly jumps out again and says, oh, Lord, don't let that happen to you. And, and, and the Bible says he rebuked Jesus saying, you know, no, 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 no. You know, and he must have been feeling pretty good after that other one, but he blew that one. That's the one where Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Because, you know, you know. so that's Peter, okay? But when Peter said, you're the son of God, what did Jesus say to him? He said, your name is Peter, which is rock. And on this rock, on your confession of faith, I'm going to build my church. On the confession of Jesus being the son of God. And the keys to the kingdom he hands to Peter. Not the keys to the Vatican. It hadn't been built yet. It's the keys to the kingdom because it's Peter who opens the door to the kingdom on Pentecost. But before Peter gets to Pentecost in that event, you'll remember Peter's the one who was following Jesus along because he told Jesus he'd never deny him. Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows. Peter says, that's not me. I'm not doing it. And yet we know that Peter did. And we know we can grab a hold of some of the emotions of this man as he denies Jesus the three times and he realizes it and he never has a chance to make it right with Jesus before Jesus dies. But of course, Jesus being the Jesus he is comes and seeks Peter out to make sure Peter understands his forgiveness after the resurrection. And it's Peter that Jesus goes to and he says to Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, you know I love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. Do you love me? You know I love you. Feed my sheep. Three times as John records it. And you can go back and read the John lesson where we talk about the different words for love being used there. But it's, it's a tremendous lesson. This is the Peter who's given the charge by Jesus to feed his sheep. And Peter does so. Peter uses his keys. He opens the doors of the kingdom on the day of Pentecost. That was a day. If we can use the, the, the sermon this morning as an illustration. That was a kairos 
Don't say Karios. It's Kairos, okay? That was a Kairos time, all right? It's a great sermon. I shouldn't say anything negative, but I don't want you walking out of this class saying Karios, okay? It's Kairos. All right, that was a Kairos time, okay? 3,000 people come to the Lord and are added to the church that day. That's a huge response. Lewis wouldn't be in class. He'd still be up front praying <laughs> prayers with these folks. 3,000. 3,000. That's a lot of people. That was Peter's opening sermon. Peter, remember also, had a relationship with Paul. Let's not forget that. This is a, a painting on the wall of the Sistine Chapel. And a lot of old painters of Peter, you'll know Peter because they'd paint keys in his hands. So that's Peter, the guy holding that honking big key right there. Okay? Paul, on the other hand, is the fellow who, if you follow down, he's got a scroll in his hand because he's the writer. So oftentimes they'll paint Paul with scrolls in those old paintings. But Peter, you can almost always tell Peter in an old painting, especially if it's a Catholic painting, because he's got a key somewhere on it. Um, nobody else gets a key but Peter in most of those paintings. So you just look and say, you know, that must be Peter. He was a strong guy. He had a key. Didn't have much in taste of clothes, but he could carry a honking key. Um, Peter and Paul, they're painted together. Why? Well, we know from reading Galatians that Peter was in Antioch when Paul was there because Paul says, I opposed him to his face because Peter was teaching legalism that he shouldn't have been teaching at the moment. Not really teaching it, but at least giving it some background support and not standing up for the gospel the way he should have. We know from reading 2 Peter, which we haven't covered yet in class, but will be covered, that Peter read the writings of Paul, some of them at least, because he talks about them. Um, we know that Peter and Paul probably had some other interactions because in the Corinthian correspondence, we'll see Paul talking about Peter being in Corinth and, and followers of Peter being in Corinth. Church history tells us that Peter and Paul were both in Rome at very similar times under the persecution of Nero, which started in 64 AD. Both of them were martyred in Rome uh, together. Peter, history tells us, was crucified, but not just history there. Jesus said that Peter would die a death with his hands stretched out. And that was written, or Peter was told that by Jesus so that Peter would know how he was going to die. History teaches that Peter was crucified upside down. That's not in the Bible. Um, that's in uh, actually a book called The Acts of Peter, which was written about 150 A.D. and uh, uh, has got a bunch of stuff in there that's bogus. So you don't always put credibility in it. But by the same token, it was a tradition that was at least well established by 150 A.D., so was, he, was Peter crucified upside down, right side up? We don't know. Um, but Peter and Paul would have known each other from their time in Rome most likely. We don't have that through biblical sources. That's historical sources that teach us that. So that's who Peter is. Now that he's fresh in your brain, Peter wrote two letters. I believe he did. We have them. We call them First and Second Peter. Now, a lot of folks ask the question, did Peter really write these letters? And there are a lot of people who question whether he wrote 1 Peter, and there are many who question whether he wrote 2 Peter. Let's look at their reasons for questioning it. First of all, we're told by scholars 
that the Greek in 1 Peter is too good for a Palestinian fisherman. I will, I've told you this before recently, I'll tell you this again. I um, uh, uh, read so many theologians and so many articles and so many books, and so much of it, I just beg for a chance to cross-examine some of these people. Because it truly, to me, doesn't make sense. It truly looks like someone who's trying to publish something different than anybody else has ever written so that they can get their name out in notoriety and publish. And so these folks sit down and try and dream up reasons. First Peter could not have been written by Peter. And one of the reasons that's given often is that the Greek is actually pretty good. And what's a Palestinian fisherman doing walking around speaking such good Greek? A Palestinian fisherman should be speaking poor Greek. Um, you know, you, you go back to the example of Reese Rondon. Now, Reese speaks English as well as you and I, but his parents speak broken English, even though they've been in the country now for 20 years. And so if they were going to write a, a book in English when it wasn't their principal language, could we expect it to have the compelling, nice grammar that you read here? Well, first of all, posh. All right, let me make some suggestions. Palestinian fishermen probably spoke Greek as well. Greek was the trade language of the day, and they had to sell the fish that they, they caught. Okay? So it's not unusual for a Palestinian fisherman, or is it un unreasonable for a Palestinian fisherman to grow up with some basics of Greek. That was the, even though the Roman language was Latin, the basic transactional language of the culture was Greek. If Peter didn't know Greek, Peter would have had a really tough time going to Corinth, going to Antioch, going to Rome, and doing all these different things that Peter did. Second of all, Peter preached sermons decade after decade after decade by the time he writes this book. Now, you go listen to that fellow this morning that spoke. His name was Michael. He goes from place to place to place speaking, like Billy Graham does. Okay? And these guys are able to get a sermon that really ministers to people. And they're able to fine-tune it, and they're able to focus it, and they're able to deliver it in a powerful way. And when they get a really good, powerful sermon like that, they do like a singer who's got a hit song. You take it to the different venues so different people can be touched by it. When you have a traveling preacher, there is a huge difference in the sermons they give than someone like Damon, who stood up here for 27 years every Sunday, where we're sitting back there saying, I heard that one. It's been a year and a half ago, but I heard that one. In fact, I think I've still got the tape. You know, It's a, it's a different thing. Peter's a traveling type preacher. And I'm sure if he's out there preaching and he's teaching in Greek, he's got some pretty good sermons under his belt that probably have pretty good Greek in them. And so when he goes to write a letter that's just going to be a short little rendition of some of the things he wants to say, I'm not at all surprised that the grammar's pretty good. And he's using subject-verb agreement, you know. He doesn't use ain't. Um, um, our son, I sent our son off to England, uh, Becky and I did, uh, he's studying this year in England at Oxford. 
uh, for his junior year of college. And I told him, I said, son, when you get over there, you need to purposefully say ain't. <laughs> he said, why? I said, because someone's going to come up to you and they're going to say, don't you know the queen's English? And then you look him straight in the eye and say, well, of course she is. What else would she be? <laughs> He quit listening to me about 10 years ago, so I don't think he even tuned in for that. But I did email him about it the other day and ask him if he'd used it. I said it'd be a real icebreaker with the British people. <laughs> but Peter's preached decades of sermons in Greek. I'm not surprised his Greek's good. And not to mention the fact he didn't write in it. He's got a secretary, an amuonensis, as they called it. This is the person who's sitting down, and it's probably Silas, Silvanus, who was uh, 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 the Latin name. That's Paul's, in at least one of Paul's letters as well. I'm not surprised. If I'm sitting there and I'm dictating something to Jan, my secretary, and I say, Jan, tell him it ain't going to work. She doesn't type, it ain't going to work. She typed, it's not going to work. Okay? I mean, come on. Next, Peter uses the Greek Old Testament when he quotes instead of the Hebrew Old Testament. He uses what's called the Septuagint um, when he quotes out of the Old Testament. And so this makes scholars think, ah, if he were the Palestinian fisherman, he'd be quoting from the Hebrew Old Testament. Well, Paul studied at the feet of Gamaliel in the temple in Jerusalem, and Paul would use the Greek New Testament most of the time. Not all of the time, but most of the time. Peter's writing to an area that's modern-day Turkey. So he's writing to Jews and, and non-Jewish Christians who aren't in Hebrew-speaking areas anyway. So that doesn't shock me. Is the Greek too? We're going to write off this book being by Peter because the Greek's so good. <laughs> Second one. I like this one too. Peter could not have written this book because the theology is too close to Paul's. Hey, they're like scholars who are charging money for people to buy their books that say this stuff. The theology is too close to Paul's. This must have been written by someone who'd been reading Paul's books and had been influenced by Paul. And surely Peter, who had the keys to the kingdom and had walked with Jesus, would not be so easily influenced by Paul, in spite of the fact that Paul says he, he did influence Paul. Peter on the gospel issues in Galatians. So, you know, there's this issue. And my response is, you know, I've seen the Sistine Chapel painting, man. They were friends. <laughs> they had interaction. Do you think for a moment when Paul came and spent weeks in Jerusalem with the apostles to tell them about the gospel that Paul had been preaching to the Gentile world that Peter spent the time sleeping and ignoring what Paul was saying as opposed to saying, Shazam! God has really worked wonders here. This is opening my eyes to what God's doing. Peter reads Paul's letters. And ultimately, isn't it God's theology anyway, not Peter's and Paul's? I mean, are we shocked that you can read different parts of this book and it says the same thing. That's the divinity behind the book. 
So, eh, I don't write it off because of that. How about number three? There are no specific references to the life of Christ in this book. You would think, so the argument goes, if Peter had really written it, he'd have put some nugget in there. Like, remember back at the July 4th picnic? <laughs> or the Sunday school social when it was so hot. And we had the water balloon fight. Okay. And, and the fact that Peter doesn't do something like that has caused some scholars to say, hey, he didn't write it. To that I say the following. Does that make it fake? Okay, this picture. See the, see the way the little boy's imitating the big guys? Let me tell you why I put it up there. If I was writing a fake gospel, I mean a fake letter, and I was going to pawn it off as one of Peter's, First thing I do is stick something in there about the life of Christ so it looks like I'm really Peter writing it. I mean, to me, that's compelling evidence. It's not Peter. I mean, it is Peter. <laughs> let, me, let me fix that. To me, that's compelling evidence. It's Peter. He doesn't feel this obligation to stick something in there to show who he is. Number two, he's not writing a gospel anyway. Peter's gospel message, Mark wrote down. We call it the gospel of Mark. This is not about the birth of Christ. He's writing a church that's going through some stuff and he's telling them what they need to do and how they ought to respond. And then, final point, if you read your Bible pretty closely and you read 1 Peter pretty closely, while there may not be specific events in the life of Christ, you will see so many places where the life of Christ is echoed or the teaching of Christ is echoed or, or gospel messages are, are, are echoed in, in this letter. I think actually there are many times, that's supposed to be times, that you do see that this is Peter in what's being said. All right, the last reason that's thrown out there oftentimes. Peter writes this book, and if there's a main core message in the book, it's about suffering. I think the word suffering is used like 15 or 17 times in the book. And their argument goes that this kind of suffering did not happen at a time where Peter was still alive. In, this kind of suffering didn't happen in Turkey at a time where Peter was still alive. And to that, I would say, first of all, read the Bible. There has been suffering for the church on just about every other page. There was certainly suffering for the Messiah. He got killed. Go tell Stephen in Acts 8, isn't it? Go tell Stephen in Acts 8, hey, you can't die today. There's no suffering for the church until Peter's dead and he's not dead yet when Stephen's being martyred. Go tell Peter when he's in prison shortly around there. Hey, you can't be in prison. There's no suffering yet for the church. Go tell Paul who's kicked and beaten and and shipwrecked and imprisoned time after time. None of that's suffering because there's not going to be any suffering until about 95 A.D. See, these people who say that there was no suffering that could have been addressed at the time, I don't think are being fair to Scripture. And I also don't think they're being fair to what happened. And that's actually a painting of Peter being crucified upside down. Peter was crucified um, during the reign of Nero around 64 to 67 A.D. because Nero was persecuting the Christians, blaming the Christians for the burning of Rome. 
And so, you know, did, now that was in Rome. Does that mean people in Turkey weren't also doing it? We don't know. But Peter is writing this at a time where suffering is, is apparent for the church. So, long story short, um, oh, let me tell you, those are the negative reasons that are offered why Peter didn't write it. In addition to those being pretty sorry reasons, there are some positive reasons to think that Peter did write it. Positive reason number one is found in the book itself. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. It says, you ready? This is a shocker. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect. That's a pretty good one. But a lot of people miss that. Um, <clears throat> that's the problem. When you put it right first, some people skim over the introduction. Peter is, claims to have written it. So you've got the internal claim. But let's say that you want to be a little bit more cynical about the Bible and you'd like to see some additional proof. I would point you to what I call Peterisms. There are phrases and there is language in here and there's tone of thought that is clearly unique to Peter in the Bible. For example, if we look at Acts chapter 4 verse 10, Acts chapter 4 verse 10 has got Peter talking and Peter says in Acts chapter 4 verse 10, Know this, you and all the people of Israel, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you, cru Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you he healed. Christ is... The stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. That's, whoops, that's that stone in the middle that holds everything together. That's got to be shaped just right. The builders, and this passage comes out of Psalm 118.22. The builders had rejected that stone. Eh, that stone's no good. We're not going to use that in the project. And yet, that very stone the builders rejected has become the stone that keeps the arch and the whole building from falling in together. It's the only one uniquely fitted to go right there in the building. Does that make sense? So Peter uses that in Acts 4. Well, he uses it again in 1 Peter 2.7. 1 Peter 2.7, Peter says, uh, uh, references that passage and actually another one. Whoops. Peter says, starting with verse 6, it says in Scripture, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. To you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who don't believe... Quotes it again. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Okay, that's pretty good. You know, now maybe you want to argue that the guy who faked Peter's name went and found a copy of Luke's history of Acts and decided to read through it and try to find some Peterism he could put into his letter. Or maybe he just stumbled in a five-chapter letter upon quoting out of the handful of verses he quoted, just happened to quote one that Peter happens to quote in his typical sermons. I think it's pretty good. Um, Peter also in Acts 5.30 talks about Jesus being crucified. Some translate it tree. Um, um, uh, it, it, the, the Greek word is wood. And, and in Peter oftentimes, instead of talking about Jesus on a cross, talks about Jesus on, on the tree or on wood. And he uses the same word, only writer in the New Testament to do it. And he does it again in 1 Peter in 2.24. So I look at this and I say, real good reasons to think Peter wrote it. 
So we went into that in a little more detail because uh, it is one of the books that scholars really jump up and down on is saying not written by Peter. I think it's useful to do it. The letter outline, there's an introduction. It talks about per, uh, the preservation we have with our salvation, the claims of salvation. This is in your outline. In the interest of time, I'm going to skip through it. We're going to start now with the introduction. Paul, intro, I mean Peter introduces the letter as Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Again, typical letter writing to list the author first for that day and age and still today. And then next you list who it's to. Peter says, to God's elect. And you might have di diaspora put in there, which is actually an English version of a Greek word, um, uh, but it's people who are scattered out. The diaspora was the scattering of the Jews, for example, uh, from Jerusalem. So Peter says it's to God's elect. The NIV doesn't use dispersed or diaspora. The NIV says scattered, strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. I left out the H. It's not Bithynia. See, if the preacher came in here and he heard me correct his pronunciation of Kairos, Kairos, he'd be saying, well, at least I put my H in Bithynia. And he'd be right, so we'd be even. Um, <laughs> Bithynia. Um, where is that? Well, I pulled a map of Turkey. And this is Turkey, Okay. And uh, if you come down this area, this would be where Israel and Syria is. That's Syria, you can actually see, but Israel's right here. You got Iraq over here. You got Egypt down on the bottom here. Um, you got Greece over there, and you got Italy way back. That's the boot over there. Um, this is Turkey. Turkey's got Ephesus for Ephesians. Up here is Constantinople, uh, Istanbul. Um, but Bithynia and Pontus are up here in this area. Galatia stretches down here, but Peter's probably writing in northern Galatia, which is the old-time Galatia. Paul wrote his letter to the churches he'd evangelized down here, Galatians. This is different. This is up north. Cappadocia is over here, and this was the area called Asia right in here. So it's really the northern part, which is outside the area of where Paul had done his work. So Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, who've been chosen... Now, this is the introduction, but look at it. Who've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood. This actually is another passage that causes some scholars to say Peter didn't write this. You know why? Because this talks about the Trinity in a sense. It's got God the Father, the Spirit, and Jesus the Son. And scholars say... You know, the church didn't even think of those three being together until sometime substantially later. Well, wrong. Read Peter. Um, Paul uses them together too, I might add, but the same scholars dismiss that writing of Paul. Um, look at the work of the Trinity here. Who've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God the Father has chosen the church. Now, that can mean several different things, and this is not uh, the, the class where we discuss it. It can mean the, the concept of what we call predestination, that God has chosen who's going to be in the church and who's not. But it can also mean, um, um, very simply, uh, that the church itself has been chosen to be God's people. And, and uh, that the church has been chosen through God's foreknowledge, also through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, because it's the Spirit that's 
at work in us trying to bring us to be more like Christ, trying to sanctify us. And the purpose of this, the reason that God has elected us or chosen us is so that we can have this sanctifying work for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling by His blood being made cleansed. So that's what we're about. That's what the church is about. The church is first and foremost about being selected uh, by God for a purpose. We've been selected to be obedient, to grow in holiness, to fix the problems that started back at the Garden of Eden after the fall. So the purpose of election is purity. That's the reason God, you know, why is Lewis a Christian? Not because he wants to reap the benefits of a prosperity gospel because he watched on TV and learned if he would be a Christian, then he could be a millionaire. Because there are some shows that seem to indicate that. No, he didn't become a Christian because he wanted Michelle to marry him. And she was a Christian and he had to to get her. He might have done it for that reason, knowing how much he loves his wife. But I know Lewis well enough to know that's not why he did it. God hadn't chosen any of you to come to church because He needs people to fill up the basket with money. God hadn't chosen any of you to come to church because He needs you not to play golf. God hadn't chosen any of you to come to church because He wants you to keep peace in your family and it's the only way to keep your spouse off your back. God hadn't chosen any of you to go to church because it's your best shot at keeping your kids from becoming dope addicts. God has chosen us and elected us because He wants to make us what we ought to be. He wants, as the preacher said, us to have His best and nothing less. That's what He wants. So, that's the introduction. The character of salvation. Peter takes a quick stroll down memory lane. I don't know if you can read it or not, but that's memory lane. I think he takes a stroll down memory lane. He doesn't say I'm taking a stroll down memory lane. But you look at it and you tell me if he's not taking a stroll. Peter says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Could Peter have ever written that without remembering the day commemorated in Matthew 16? Who do you say that I am? First pronouncement on earth. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Don't you know Peter thrilled every time he said it and went back to Matthew chapter 16. How about the next verse? Jesus, God, he has given us new birth. Do you think a man could write that passage without remembering what it was like when Jesus was approached at night by this teacher named Nicodemus? And Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless you be born again... Peter knew that. Peter was there for that. And Peter writes about God giving us a new birth. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's where we got the new birth. As Peter writes that, can you imagine the memories Peter had of the appearance of Jesus after the resurrection, of Peter telling everybody, we've seen the Lord, and Thomas saying, oh yeah, right, I ain't going to believe it until I'm putting my fingers in the holes. My hand in his side. And Jesus appears. And old 
big mouth Thomas doesn't say, oh, can I stick my, <laughs> see if that's really you. Because he knew and he falls down at his feet, feels really bad about what he said. Okay? So Peter, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And don't you think Peter thinks back about Matthew 16? Well, this is, time out, go back. There we go. Who do you say I am? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Praise, okay. Same Matthew 16, same day where Jesus says, I'm going to be killed and resurrected from the dead that Peter's now proudly proclaiming. Don't you know Peter remembered Jesus, he must be killed and raised to life and Peter rebuked him. Never, Lord, you never die and get resurrected. That's when Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Don't you think Peter sitting there what a stroll down memory lane. Isn't it wonderful how when you walk in godliness, God can take all of the gunk from the past and make some sense out of it? Where you can even look at, I look at some of the things I did that I'm just absolutely embarrassed about. And I'm so embarrassed, I'm not even going to tell y'all. But internally, I look back at them and I think, isn't it neat the way God worked that out? All right. Stroll down memory lane. That's why I think Peter says that we've been given an inheritance that can never spoil or fade. It hadn't faded for Peter. Peter hadn't forgotten it. It's as fresh and what memory lane had was as real to him and it never would fade because it was real. Peter says, you may have had to suffer grief. That's supposed to be a melting pot like you melt gold, okay? You melt gold to skim the, the gunk off the top. And he says, that's what... Your faith is doing. It's being purified in fire. And Jesus is getting praised. And, and then he continues down memory lane. He says, though you've not seen Jesus, you love him and you believe in him. Don't you know? He remembered Jesus saying, as is recorded in John, to Thomas. That's my Thomas scene. Because you've seen me, you've believed. But blessed are those who've not seen and still believe. That's for you and me. But that's who Peter's writing to. And Peter's thinking about that. Blessed are, these are the people Jesus had been talking about as opposed to Thomas and the rest of us. So, um, you know, the claims of salvation. I'll, I, will, I, I can do this in two minutes. If y'all are going to the ball game, you're going to be late anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> therefore, therefore, because of these wonderful things and the way God's chosen us, therefore... Prepare your minds for action like an athlete stretches out. Kevin Roberts and I had the incredible joy yesterday, which for a nerd like me is like just a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. We flew on the team plane with the Texas Tech Red Raiders to Nebraska. We were in the locker room with the guys after the game. We were on the sidelines with them before the game. We ate breakfast with them before the game, flew back with them after the game. Pat Moore's here. He was a professional athlete. He knows this stuff. I was a professional nerd. I still am. I don't know this stuff. To me, man, this was really cool. And did you know yesterday morning at breakfast, one of the coaches pulls me aside and says, you're a lawyer. I said, right. I, I, I thought he was going to ask me to play cornerback or something. <laughs> I was sticking out my chest, sucking in my guts. Put me in, coach. I can play. Anna, he says to me, he says, uh, he says, y'all talk a lot. And I said, yeah. And now I'm thinking quarterback because I'm going to be calling the signals. 
he says, uh, he says, nobody's allowed to talk at breakfast. I just wanted to warn you. <laughs> I said, okay. Why? And he says, because they're getting their minds ready and they're focusing. They're getting their minds ready and they're focusing. They're not allowed to talk. They're thinking about what they got to do. They're thinking about the game plan. They're focused. That's what he says. He says, you prepare your minds for action, but here's how you do it. You set your hope fully on the day of Jesus that's coming. And you know that's what you're living for. You know you've got eternity. You know you are a different person. You know this isn't just a religion. It's not just a comfort food. It is for real. There really is a Lord. He really is coming. He really is going to make us right. And when you focus and you get your mind ready like that, then it's logical to say, let's be holy. Then it's logical to live our lives in reverent fear because we know we've been purchased with the blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish. So we are easy to get rid of malice. We get rid of deceit. We get rid of hypocrisy. We get rid of envy, slander. Instead, we crave pure spiritual milk to grow up in our salvation because Jesus is either something that's going to trip you as a stone down there or you'll see him as the capstone that finishes the picture as we talked about last Wednesday night. Points for home. God is at work to save and to purify us. So let's live our faith and grow strong in the Lord. Pray with me briefly. Lord, I pray your blessings upon us as a class. I pray your blessings upon each person here. Thank you for who you are and that you work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.